0: From the European Broadcasting Union in Geneva, this is the Eurovision News Podcast. In this globalized world, broadcasters and media outlets are using translation and transcription tools to produce content in a variety of different languages and formats. This helps them to switch languages easily to share news, culture, and entertainment. I'm Laurent Fratt, producer and host of this episode. Today, we're going to talk to Ben Poor, who leads the EBU's Eurovox project. Ben has an extensive background in commercial radio, and now he explores how the EBU and its members can use new technologies creatively and keeps an eye on what's new and upcoming, especially in mobile listening, connected TV, and innovative ways of listening to radio. Thanks for joining us today, Ben. Could you
1: explain what Eurovox actually is in short, and what does it do? So Eurovox is a platform for opening up language tools and technologies to a wider range of users. Its strapline is making media multilingual, and that kind of encapsulates the top level. It's not meant to be a technical platform. It's meant to enable non-technical users, journalists, and content editors to take advantage of the wealth of new technologies that are out there, mainly AI-based-based based technologies. I mean, we know, have known for many years, transcription, translation, and voicing technologies from the likes of Amazon, Google, Microsoft. They've been around for some years, but also uh, organizations like Speechmatics and DeepL and Volcapia and Bertin, uh, but also the newer entrants such as OpenAI's Whisper, which is um, an interesting technology based on the same thing that ChatGPT is built on, uh, and other so-called large language models. So. The application of AI-based technologies for the purposes of speech-to-text, text-to-text translations, but also text-to-speech voice synthesis as well. And Eurovox is really there to give content producers and journalists easy and simple access to a wide range of vendors without having to do something different each time. It's meant to give them a single route to be able to access all of these different vendors easily and quickly. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey in the development of Eurovox? Sure. Uh, well, Eurovox was something that was first kind of planted a seed by our then incoming director of EBU's technology and, and innovation, Antonio Archiecono. He had a kind of a vision that he pitched to uh, the EBU's management, which was seeing that there was a leap forward in the technologies in terms of transcription, so speech to text, but also translation and other language-based technologies, that we should grab that. We should actually do a project which enables our members to get into that more easily, more quickly, and also to be able to use a wider range of different technology vendors rather than being led down a cul-de-sac of only ever integrating with Amazon or Google or Microsoft. So Eurovox was born around 2019. Really, we started from quite humble beginnings, uh, but our aim was always to uh, both keep a track of the technology advancements at that time, but also create actually useful user-facing tools and um, utilities that non-technical users, journalists, content editors, and others could use um, right from the off. So we weren't trying to just look at the technicals. We were also trying to look at how real people could use this. Uh, And I think that's really paid off because... Now we see uh, a real explosion of, I won't call them gimmicks, but certainly really interesting little tools on the web that are designed to do things like very quickly uh, transcribe and cut podcasts, like Descript for instance, uh, but also do things like speech synthesis, do things like uh, automatic lip syncing. So quite there's been an explosion in interesting uh, new technologies around language tech, around AI. And of course, uh, there's a huge hype around AI now. So I think that having started in 2019, when maybe the technology wasn't quite as mature as as it is today, uh, was a really good thing because it allows us to set the foundations for where we will be in 2024 and beyond.
0: It certainly has exploded, but now how does Eurovox stand out from the competition and other translation tools?
1: That's that's a really good question. Um, we can't stand still because uh, everyone, the market is moving so quickly that we have to make sure that we're always providing some kind of unique selling point, something that is distinguishing us with the competition. So I think the top line, I would say, is that Eurovox has been designed from the ground up with broadcasters in mind, with public service media in mind. It's meant to be open and transparent, which means that We provide uh, a single access to many different language tools and vendors. We also create tools that fit within the current workflows of public service media. That is to say, as mentioned before, uh, there are some fantastic web-based tools out there, but largely they're isolated from each other. For instance, if you use a web-based tool that does a transcription or translation, you don't really get to choose how that transcription and translation is done. The company you're using will have made an arrangement with another AI tech vendor, they'll have chosen which languages you have available, they'll have chosen the quality and the price. Whereas Eurovox means that you can openly and transparently choose between uh, the different vendors you like. You can pick a mix, you can do whatever you want to do. But also, we make sure that the workflows that we've defined within Eurovox, the ways that you use Eurovox, can be transparently integrated with your current production workflows. It's not that it has to be something that your journalists have to save their file from your content management system, export it, insert it into another system, export the transcription. That's a lot of work for someone who doesn't have time, who needs to do something quickly. So really, Eurovox defines workflows that means that we can deeply integrate our technology in existing workflows, whatever that might be. I mean, a good example that I always demonstrate is that For instance, you may have um, a social media publishing workflow where uh, you have existing editors and content producers making content for TikTok. What do you need there? You need someone to do subtitling very easily and quickly. So the tools that we have inside the Eurovox project enable us to hook into the way that you currently publish, to provide an easy-to-use interface to be able to create subtitles, to easily render subtitles into a video, and then take those results, the subtitle video, back into your production workflow to publish on TikTok. And it makes it seem like it's an integral part of how you already work. It doesn't feel like you're going somewhere else. It feels like you're already within your own workflow. And that's something we've we demonstrated with a couple of different production products, but also something we're currently working on with a number of our EBU members as well.
0: Yeah, I wanna hear more about that. But first, can we talk a little bit about the providers? Because that is a, an interesting aspect of Eurovox and I'm not exactly sure how it works. So who are the providers and how do they integrate within the Eurovox um, platform?
1: So I think the the best way maybe to think about it is imagine a switchboard a switchboard that is connected to different telephone lines, and you want to be able to call out to one of those telephone lines. In a way, the Eurovox, um, what we call the core API, is essentially a single layer, a single API if if you're into programming, which connects into different language tool vendors. So that could be Amazon, that could be Google, that could be Microsoft Azure. We have other vendors such as Speechmatics who do good European language transcriptions. We have DeepL, who do very good European language translations, uh, but we also have some specialist providers. So, f- as an example, um, our Swiss member, RTR, who is in the east of Switzerland, they have a requirement to provide broadcasts in Romance, which is a language spoken by about thirty 000 to 50,000 people in a small part of Switzerland. They've actually commissioned their own transcription and translation technology from a commercial vendor. To do Romance, it's not something that's been offered by any of the big platforms, uh, because the technology vendors, the big technology vendors, they're driven by commercial imperatives rather than, should we say, social imperatives to be able to reach wider. So we're able to integrate in easily the big vendors, again, the ones I've mentioned, the hyperscalers, but also uh, language specialists, again, for Romance and other language specialists. Uh, But even also universities, so some universities specialize in particular languages with a better quality than the commercial vendors do. So that's easy to integrate. Uh, We're also working on training our own technologies as well. So we've actually been in a project, a collaboration project with the University of Pisa in Italy to see what we could do to create our own translation models. So a way of translating between English, French, Arabic, uh, German, and Italian to see what we could do there. And we've actually reached quite a good quality. And that's something we'll be integrating into Eurovox and really putting all these different ways of doing language tools and tech into one pot and putting that behind one single layer means that regardless of the technology, our members and others can make use of the best technology out there. They can mix and match between what their needs are rather than necessarily having to stick within one particular provider.
0: Now, in terms of the provider and choosing the provider, how does the user determine which provider will be best for their use? Because we've seen over the last couple of years, because we use this regularly in the Eurovision newsroom, um, how Ukrainian at the start uh, of the conflict or the war, was really not as effective as it is now. Working with our colleagues at uh, Suspine and the feedback that they provided, it, it really wasn't usable until, I don't have a date exactly in mind, but now it's it's quite powerful and very effective. And at, at a certain point, the updates made it uh, available for us to, to make very powerful translations in Ukrainian. But part of that is deciding which platform
1: or provider to use. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, your example is a very key one. So at the beginning of uh, the conflict, uh, Ukrainian language support for both transcription and translation was quite poor. It was seen as a minority language. No real work had been done in creating the right models for the right quality. But I would say, from my experience, within around six months, that changed rapidly. So one of the projects that uses Eurovox is uh, the European uh, Perspective or the News Pilot Project, which gathers news content, text, video, audio from over 20, I think nearly 30 different EBU members, including including Ukraine. It will translate that into English and other languages to be able to easily publish that on other EBU member websites, and it's been a fantastically successful system. We do something like 3,000 articles, media clips every day. But at the beginning, we had a very quick need to improve the quality of Ukrainian. So as mentioned, the benefit of Eurovox is that you can grab onto a new technology. You can take advantage of a new vendor that's pushing forward further than the others and mix and match between. So the way that the news pilot did was, um, in addition to using a particular vendor for the range of other languages which were well-supported, we identified that one of the vendors seemed to have moved forward in its support for Ukrainian. At that time, that was Microsoft Azure. So we were able to individually target Ukrainian language content using that one provider, again, without any real change to the interface from the news pilot. It was literally one configuration flag. We just said, for Ukrainian, we want you to use Microsoft Azure. And again, that demonstrates the value of EuroX because, again, six months later, Other vendors caught up, other vendors that were quicker or even more cost effective. So we then switched back to using those vendors for Ukrainian language. So we can actually use Eurovox to kind of create more of a marketplace to compete against different vendors. If we find another vendor that has very good Ukrainian language support, we can switch over to them. But to go back to your question of how do we know which is the right vendor to use? um, At the moment, it's essentially um, personal experience. So uh, assessing the quality of transcription and translation can be quite um, a scientific study in terms of benchmarking. We do do that within EBU's Technology Innovation. Um, Some of my colleagues are doing that on a daily basis. Uh, I would say from the Eurovox point of view, this kind of reflects more generally, we don't tend to do our own research. We don't tend to get into the deep research and R&D aspects of, of what these different technologies do. Actually, the goal of Eurovox is to industrialize, it's to make it available, it's to make it accessible, it's to put it into the hands of non-technical users. So really in the selection for different languages, what actually happens is we talk to journalists, we talk to content producers, we run the content through different vendors and we ask them which one's the best, what do you feel most comfortable with, in terms of the transcriptions and translations. And that's kind of what drives the the vendor selection, certainly for that project, and I would say for a wider range of things. That being said, we are working on how we can automatically propose the right vendor for the right task more often. So the goal is for, again, a very non-technical user to go in and say, I have a piece of content in Ukrainian, just transcribe it for me with the best quality for this purpose. Give me a translation to German. Again, pick the right vendor for the right task. I don't need to know who is the right vendor for the right task. You tell me. So far more of a kind of a holding the intelligence within Eurovox rather than expecting people to know themselves up front. I wonder if we could linger on the European
0: Perspective Project for just a minute, also known as a news pilot, uh, because this has really been um, a project that has gapped or has helped gap this cross-cultural and national communication. And I think it kind of touches on this broader question about how translation tools like Eurovox are are helping to to bridge this gap. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project uh, briefly, as we'll probably have somebody on uh, later that's from the project itself uh, to explain it, but from your perspective, from the technical side of it, and then seeing the results, can you elaborate a little bit more on that, please?
1: Absolutely. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a two-way relationship. That's why I'm such, a, I'm such a cheerleader. It's a really, really good example of why we need Eurovox. Uh, and it's also something that relies heavily on having translation and transcription te- technologies uh, available to it. So it uses Eurovox heavily. Uh, again, I mentioned that it translates 3,000 articles along with audio and video clips every day. That's done purely through Eurovox. Again, that's done for over 20 or 30 languages, I think. Um, And it's a system that allows a journalist, a content producer to take content from any of the participating broadcasters and say, the original language was published by RTV. It's in Spanish. I'd actually like this in Finnish. Now. From a purely technological point of view, we could say, well, that's easy. You just use one of the vendors just to translate it. But I think the real um, genius of the system is it has been built with content producers, with journalists as part of its development, which means that it's not just about the use of technology, it's about creating workflows, it's creating a platform that works for journalists, which means that, for instance, we use the technology, we use Eurovox to translate to transcribe and also actually to do a voiceover for video content because that's exactly how it works. But at each step, the journalist is in is in the loop. They're there to say, this is a good transcription from my original content, or this is a good translation into whatever language I want it to. I can make edits if I really want it to because one of the, the, the special uh, functions of the Eurovox uh, tools is that it is an assistive tool. It can be used To automatically create transcriptions and translations, but we also need to provide the actual interface to be able to edit those and correct those. So again, the news pilot does that. It allows a journalist to say, I approve this content. I have the rights for these images. I have the rights for this audio. So it's very much a workflow that's geared to how news content in this case is published using AI as a support mechanism, but doing that in um, an intelligent and also very transparent way such that, it is very much flagged that this content has been processed using AI, but with journalists and content producers in the driving seat. And I think that's super important for trust in news that we use AI responsibly and openly.
0: Agreed. I've been fascinating all around. In terms of transparency and uh, what's definitely a hot-button topic at the moment is data. Now, when journalists and our members are using Eurovox, Is it within a closed network? Are these language models uh, using the data for other purposes besides the translations themselves? Could you elaborate about
1: the safety of uh, the user's data for a moment? You're right, that is a key question. So I would say when we started off with Eurovox, um, we maybe didn't focus on that so much, but now that we see that this is being used more widely for news content, even for sensitive news content, such as investigative journalism, we must consider where the data goes. And so that's a process that's been going on now for at least six months, I would say. Um, In terms, to get down to the details, in terms of where the content goes, it depends on which vendor you use. So for example, there are, we use a couple of US-based vendors. So OpenAI, uh, people may know ChatGPT and Whisper, that's hosted by a company called OpenAI. They have their own hosted service. We make that available. There's also a company called Deepgram, again, based in the US, um, which we also make available as a vendor, but other vendors that we make available are based in the EU. So that's a, probably a bit easier in terms of data protection. Um, some are based, uh, in the UK, some are based in the EU itself, or we can choose where that data goes. So largely we have contracts with the different vendors that we arrange ourselves for the Eurovox project. And again, that's another advantage of Eurovox in that we, should we say, take care of the contractuals, but also we, we keep an eye on where the data is going. And this is certainly becoming a hot topic. Uh, again, I mentioned investigative journalism. Uh, I did have a question posed to me of, we had this. Sensitive piece of content that we don't want to release the to the outside world. What happens to our data? And actually, this is something we thought about from the very beginning. One of the people that we talked about when we were trying to create the Eurovox project was uh, Swedish Radio, who had, or certainly still have, um, quite a, a strong requirement to keep control of their content that hasn't been published. They don't want that to go out of their broadcast house, which is shared by a number of other broadcasters as well. They're not unique in that. So we're creating an architecture which is kind of hybrid. I don't want to get too technical, but it means that if you're transcribing or translating content, you can choose if you want to, to send it off to a US-based vendor. You can choose to stick within the EU if you wish to, but you can also uh, choose to use things that you yourself hold on-premise. That is something that is entirely contained within your own infrastructure. In a way that is hybrid between Eurovox and your own technology. So it kind of means that if you want to transcribe something, the transcription happens within your own technology center, within your own HQ. And then we in the Eurovox world treat that as much as possible as we can do, as much as you let us, which means that we do the heavy lifting of giving you an interface to be able to easily transcribe, translate, edit your content, but actually the sensitive data always is held entirely within your own infrastructure. And there's kind of a new idea. And again, that's kind of a a new unique selling point that we have between some external tool vendors. We're trying to think, what are the requirements here for public service media, especially in terms of of data protection, privacy, and investigative journalism. So this is something we're gonna be working on maybe in the the first half of 2024, uh, but certainly before the end of 2024. Uh, But it's certainly one of the things we're gonna have to focus on to, uh, reassure our members that we're treating their data in a way that they expect.
0: Indeed. I, I wonder on on that if you could explain briefly how these models actually learn, because as we've seen, I think it's every six weeks they get an update. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here. And the effectiveness, obviously, as we saw with Ukrainian, gets better and better all the time. Yep. So how do they learn
1: and how are they getting better on a regular basis? <laughs> I think we have to go back to how these models are created in the first place. Um, to explain it non-technically, because I'm, I'm, I'm no deep expert here, but if we take a transcription or even a translation model, uh, that requires an amount of training data. So for translation models, for instance, the training data is essentially large uh, corporate of text. So lines of text with the same text in one language, and then lines of text of the same text in another language. And it's essentially a comparison between the original language and the target language. And you feed that into whatever engine you have, and there are a range of different engines, some proprietary, some open source, some research. And that would then create a model. And the model can then be used to throw in new text. And the way it works internally depends on the engine. Uh, If it's a neural network, for instance, it creates links between certain words. Um, Again, I don't want to get too much into the details. So that model is being created. Now, of course, you can go through refinement processes. Uh, There are certain ways in which you can fine tune the results. But essentially, most of the vendors go through a process of retraining. That is that they update their training set. Uh, They tune the actual input training set to include new information. So you're right in saying that models they can update every six weeks it depends on the vendor really but i would say six weeks is probably a a good figure i give people the expectation that we find a leap forward i mean real leap forward in technology every three to six months but every single uh, vendor will do their own retraining Um, a good example is for instance um In Again, with Ukrainian, we found that certain place names for transcription weren't being properly identified. As in, if someone said it, it would give you a different word. It wouldn't capitalize it. It wouldn't recognize it as as what we would call a named entity, a place or a person or a topic. After six weeks, two months, we found that that was coming through. So it obviously added some of these place names, topics, people into their training set. Um, And that's done on a regular basis. Um, The way they do that, again, we don't have visibility of because... These commercial vendors, they're black boxes. We don't have necessarily any input into that. I can feed back to them errors that we find, but that doesn't mean that that will be fixed quickly. It doesn't mean that it will be fixed at all. There's no, should we say, single way of doing that. Essentially, we can just send them an email, but we have to rely on them to do their retraining. So that's kind of the downside of using commercial vendors in a way. But again, this is another reason why actually having competition having different vendors integrated, being able to play them off and benchmark them against each other is really important because we may find that one vendor is more reactive to a a particular topic than the other ones. Part of what I'm getting from what
0: you're saying here is that the more people that use it, the more effective that these tools become. Is that correct in thinking?
1: I think they can be. I think that that, that's that's definitely one consequence. Uh, I would say that looking, I mean, we're, we're going back to the data security point here, which is, Certainly in a lot of the contracts that we have with the vendors, they have certain clauses, which means that the data that you give them is not used for retraining. So they are keeping your data secure. They're not doing retraining from that. That's certainly some of the vendors. Uh, I would say that some of the US vendors, particularly, they have a slightly different outlook. They may well use the data to do retraining. Again, that's their choice. And this is why it's always good to know some of the details of the particular vendor that you're sending your data to and make sure it matches with your expectations and constraints. I think if any uh,
0: particular individual or organization has specific security concerns about their translation, they should contact you directly. I think we could continue on with data and how these uh, machines are learning for hours. But before we move on, I'm curious. What is your personal perspective on how public service journalism, public service media should be feeding these large language models and or um, AI models in general with our data to improve them?
1: I am not necessarily an ethicist working in this area, but I would say this should be a consideration for all public service journalists and content producers. What do I... Why would I want to improve the models of commercial vendors? If I do, what do I get out of it? Uh, I can certainly point to some examples where some of our members have done collaborations with some of these hyperscalers, these technology vendors. So they've got some value out of doing that. Um, But I don't necessarily see the case in a relationship where content is provided from a content producer, which is then used to improve the commercial property of another organization. I mean, if I might kind of spin around a little bit, this could also be a strong case for content producers, public service to create their own models. And again, that's something that's also been done. Um, There was an initiative in the Netherlands to collaborate between industry, broadcasting, medical, government, and improve what then was not a very good state of Dutch language transcriptions and translations. Now that situation has become much better due to circumstances. But again, there are there are large numbers of languages which are not served properly by the large technology vendors. Uh, again, I pointed towards Romance, which had to have been done by our Romance language broadcaster, unlikely that anyone else apart from language associations were going to do that. So that's not cheap, that takes a lot of effort. Is it the place of public service to do that? One could argue yes. Um, Our requirements for languages extend way beyond the commercial imperatives of the proprietary tool vendors. So it could be seen actually as the place of public service to work in this area, to partner with universities and others and actually help them improve their models. But to improve the models of commercial vendors, I'm not sure that case has been proven yet.
0: I want to pivot for a second, if you don't mind, and talk about something uh, that was uh, pretty exciting in recent events for you guys. And uh, this was the event in uh, Belgium uh, where you provided live um, captions and translation for a radio event. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I I think probably most of what we've been talking about so far is taking file-based content, transcribing and translating that and making it available to audiences. I would say what I call real-time or live transcription is uh, another beast entirely. It's essentially almost a separate world, but we try and bring them together in the Eurovox world. And and we're doing that this year to try and bring uh, the world of file-based and live together into one uh, user-facing tool. But to directly address what you've just said, I mean, we've been working in different areas on how we could use live transcription and simultaneous translation for different purposes. So we started out, for instance, with the question of what could we use This technology for for meetings, for um, some of our EBU assemblies, for some of our EBU events, to open that more up to a multilingual audience. So obviously the EBU has um, many different members. Uh, I think the the EBU membership creates content in, I think, over 150 different languages. So there's a wide range of different languages, not just English and French, the official EBU languages. So we wanted to explore how we could use this technology to really open up what we do in the EBU to a wider audience. How can we we allow people to communicate more with each other? So starting a couple of years ago, we started to use some of this technology, uh, both for the real-time transcription, but also simultaneous translation. Now we've demonstrated that quite successfully during 2023. That's really when things started getting going. We used um, a platform, as part of one of our EBU events, the EBU's technical assembly hosted in Austria. We demonstrated that we could create an application, a second screen application that delegates there could view on their telephone, laptops, tablets to understand what a speaker was staying on stage in English, translated into their native language. So we supplied translated subtitles into over 30 languages, including some quite minority language like uh, Catalan and Romance and Welsh as well, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, And we felt that was quite successful. We proved that the platform worked. So we wanted to go on from there. So we demonstrated that working in a couple of other internal EBU events, but we were thrilled that our colleagues um, from VRT in Belgium, they wanted us to try this on a production basis in front of audiences. So those who might know, there's a charity event in the week before Christmas called The Warmest Week to translate, I won't try Flemish. Um, That is essentially a week-long charity event where they set up stage in Bruges. They invite along the public to come and see radio shows live with live interviews, uh, interaction with the audience. So it's it's quite an interesting event. And they asked us to provide the live captions in Flemish on their OTT platform, VRT Max, and also connected TV applications. So we leapt at the chance. Uh, They were really engaged. We had a really good collaboration with them in the months leading up to this event. We worked through some technical issues, um, but we were very pleased that we were able to provide live captions during that whole week, 24 hours a day during a whole week in a way that was pretty much solidly robust. So maybe a few wrinkles here and there, but that's great because it was a chance to try out the technology. But it ran essentially uh, unproblematically for a whole week. The most important thing for us was that they actually asked for feedback from the audience. Um, and I believe hundreds of people replied, which is already a good thing. And the feedback was in the majority very positive. So it was kind of trying out a new thing, but also seeing how audiences would react. And And don't forget that live transcriptions are not traditional subtitles. They're literally the word that comes out of people's mouths, including all the disfluencies, all the, the misspeakings, uh, in a way that is different than traditional subtitling. And actually, it seems that audiences actually really appreciated that. And it was great to demonstrate how these technologies can be used for accessibility for deaf audiences, for instance. So I'm hoping that we can do further collaborations like that in 2024. And at least now we have uh, the proof that the platform works and also that audiences appreciate when it's there.
0: The first thing that comes to mind is uh, the babble fish from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? And this is, instead of having to insert uh, a small yellow fish into the user's ear, uh, this is a, a lot more accessible technology, more comfortable, We can we say. But um, wow, this is uh, no longer science fiction.
1: Is there any other use? I was going to say the fish example is a really good one because that's, uh, When I gave my first presentations on Eurovox in 2019, I actually drew upon that image, the fish sticking a fish in your ear and being able to understand any language natively. And actually at that time, Google had a set of headphones that purportedly allowed you to do speech-to-speech translation, which is kind of the holy grail of translation, not having to transcribe or go through a set of processes. It literally goes from me speaking automatically to be translated into another voice. There there are huge challenges to do that, but that's kind of the end goal. But now we have that. And and as another concrete example, for instance, I joined a meeting with a group of German broadcasters yesterday. Um, and I'm, I'm an English person. I don't speak many languages, but I always feel very guilty when I have to make a group of 12 German speakers speak English for my benefit. That, that, that feels horrible to me. So I used Eurovox. I used the same platform. I used Eurovox Live to transcribed them from German into English. I didn't tell them that, but I was able to actually participate in the meeting, able to follow it, participate, ask questions, respond to questions that were posed to me in German. I responded in English, of course, uh, but it, it was actually a test for my, my benefit to say, well, actually, can I use this technology in my daily life? And the answer is yes. Fascinating.
0: There's a, a lot of uses for translations that's not just for direct communication. These translations for podcasting, for radio programs, for video programming can all help increase search engine optimization. Can we touch on that just briefly uh, on a very surface level so that the listeners can understand that how this could also benefit for them if they're not including translations uh, necessarily?
1: Absolutely. Um- I mean, one of the things that I describe when explaining Eurovox is it's a a set of layers. So at the very lowest layer, we can do transcription, translation, voice synthesis. Now these are building blocks. You need to build on top of that with use cases and workflows that make sense. Again, we have the Eurovox Studio. That's a tool sitting on top of these building blocks that allows users to, to do certain things. The news pilot is another workflow that sits on top of the building blocks to do another set of specific things. Other use cases, other workflows can be built on top. So really, you can do any number of things based on these technologies. SEO is one of these things. So obviously, if I have a piece of audio content or video content, if I can transcribe what is being talked about inside that piece of content, that gives me insight. That gives me insights into the topics, the speakers, what is being said, the names being mentioned. These are all data points that can be used to improve SEO, so we can surface those topics and transcriptions into a search engine if we wish people to be able to find our content more easily. It can be used to improve recommendations, which I guess is a, is a form of SEO. Uh, so for instance, we can say, well, my podcast that I'm gonna publish to a particular podcast platform, I'm also gonna provide you with a transcript, which means that when people search for the topics that I have talked about inside my podcast, they will more easily find that piece of content. It might be more prominent. Again, that's no guarantee, but having more data points, more information that is about the content beyond a title and description naturally makes that more accessible, more searchable, and possibly more prominent as well. And I think the same applies to SEO. So whilst there's no guarantees, um, there's every possibility to improve prominence and SEO when you have more information on what is actually inside the content using transcriptions.
0: Clearly content recommendations is the future for our business, both in media and in news. Um, what are some of the developments in translation technology that we can look forward to? And, um, how do you envision the role of translation evolving in the field of media and journalism? We've already come so far. Um, what's, what's coming down the pipe? Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's a super question. If only I knew, I mean, I would say, There have been some big shocks. I mean, for instance, uh, everyone knows ChatGPT, GPT GPT model. It's been around for a while, but it it hit a point where it became present in the public consciousness. And that's kind of like an earthquake, a a revolution in terms of that technology. It revolutionized transcription at the time because OpenAI's whisper came around. Uh, It became easy to do transcription, but easy to do transcriptions. In so many more languages, I can download Whisper from uh, GitHub and I can use that on my own laptop, which means I can then transcribe any number of languages and I can handle mixed language content easily. Um, translation, I think maybe it's an interesting one. It may be waiting for another revolution, but maybe we've always maybe we've already been there. Um, I would say looking ahead, there are a number of really interesting, what we call large language models. So essentially, essentially like OpenAI's GPT, big, big models created by, um, by the big hyperscalers, uh, Meta, who obviously run Facebook, they've been releasing some really interesting technologies over the last six months, but Google are there as well. Microsoft are there. They've been creating these large language models that purport to be able to do translations, uh, for up to 1600 languages, which is just crazy. So really opening up this technology to a huge range of other languages, minority languages, languages spoken by tens of thousands of people, and not just for translations, but also for voice synthesis as well. I mean, I've been using some amazing voice synthesis providers, which open up the possibility, and this is something that we're going to do. This is something that's going to happen quite soon. I can take a piece of news content and I can transcribe. Sorry, voice synthesis. Does that mean
0: like text to voice, being able to type something and have it come out in a in a voice?
1: Exactly, and we've that's that's been around for for years. I mean, that's available on mobile phones. But what I'm talking about is uh, a paradigm shift in being able to take content and essentially transform the speaker into another language. Now, there are certain web-based tools that do that. Um, fairly well. But I think the trick would be to do that on an industrial scale with large amounts of content. So the use cases, for instance, I'm, I'm ingesting a news clip, which is spoken in one language. What I can do is I can identify who's speaking, what the words they're speaking. I can translate that, but I can also clone their vocal patterns and make them speak in another language. A couple of years ago, that was kind of science fiction technology providers were playing around with that. It was available in limited circumstances, but now that's available commercially, that's available widely. So that's something that we'll see where we can actually easily take one piece of content and quickly and on a large scale, transform that into another language as well. So that's kind of the advantage of some of these move, uh, movements in, in the large language model world in which we can really quickly and easily apply translation technologies for media into many more different languages, but also more quickly um, and in more of a larger scale as well. For
0: our final question, what would you like journalists and heads of news departments to take away from this interview?
1: I would say now's the time to look into these things if you're not already. These technologies have moved away from being the domain of research and development technologists like myself. They are there to be used by journalists, by content editors. They are there to be exploited by you. They are tools that should be there on hand to make your life easier. Uh, These things won't replace people. They'll never replace journalists. Journalists always need to be in the loop here, but they can be useful in making your content reach further in a way that you still retain control and trust of the audience as well. So I think that's super important that journalists should really grasp these tools um, otherwise someone else will. I mean, that's just inevitable. If they don't have a place on the table in terms of these tools and technologies, then someone else will come in and they will apply these tools and technologies to your own content. So I would certainly encourage all content producers, journalists to just go out there and find out what's out there. Ask ask us in the EBU what you think we should be looking at. Come and use Eurovox. It's, it's, it's available for EBU members, and I'm always happy to talk to non-EBU members as well, but these tools are here to be used and and they should be tools that non-technical users can use in a way that fits in with their needs. Ben Poor, thanks so much for this fascinating
0: conversation about Eurovox.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and telling a friend about us. This is Laurent Fratt, producer of the podcast. The music was created by Mickey Curling, and Martin Lanneser took care of the sound. Thank you from all of us.